Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. If you know about the Enigma machine and the men and women codebreakers from Bletchley Park and other locations during World War II, you might assume that that was the beginning of modern military cryptology. But that would be a wrong assumption. My guest today writes about an earlier war and a man who has not, until now, received his full due. Betsy Rohali Smoot is author of Parker Hit, The Father of American Military Cryptology, published by the University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Betsy, go to BetsyRohaliSmoot.com and follow her on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Betsy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me here, Ira. It's a pleasure. Before we talk specifically about Parker Hit, can you put military cryptology into the context of the assets that you need to win a war? Well, I think that subject has evolved to the point where I'm not really able to talk about it for the modern warfare. But it was, you know, cryptology, making codes for ciphers and collecting intelligence is not a new thing. It was done in the Renaissance. It was done during the Civil War. But it evolved into a mo more modern system. And in World War I, we start to really see the first institutional efforts in American cryptology. And that then leads us to what happens in the 20th century. So it's another tool for the military to complete their mission. You retired from the Center for Cryptologic History of the National Security Agency in 2017. What was your career like there? if you can talk about it. Sure, I can talk about it. I spent the first 24 years of my career at the National Security Agency as an analyst, as an intelligence analyst and a manager. And I had the good fortune in 2007 to be selected for a position in the Center for Cryptologic History, which did a lot of historical support to the agency and history and heritage for the workforce. So we were in the habit of writing we had daily items we wrote. I had a blog for the workforce about historical things and did longer journal items and longer publications as a part of my classified work. And did you rely on the, the materials in the agency for some of your research on Parker Hitt? There was a little bit of material at the agency regarding Parker Hitt in the archival files, most of which have since gone to the National Archives. I really first learned about Parker Hitt on my first week in the job at the biannual Center for Cryptologic History Symposium on Cryptologic History when I heard a talk that mentioned him. And I've been an avid genealogist for decades, and I wondered whether Parker Hitt was related to my husband. And it turns out he was, their fourth cousins twice removed. And then I got interested in where Hitt was buried and I started doing research outside the agency resources to try to locate him. What drew you to Parker Hitt besides the possible connection to your husband? I just was really interested. I was looking for something to write about that hadn't been done before. You know, so many cryptologic history subjects have been covered, and I was looking for my own little piece of the pie. And I just got more and more interested in HIT. At the time, I was also working on a massive study of World War I cryptology, which actually is finally going to be published this year. 
after many years of waiting for it to be edited and produced. And Hit turned up all the time in the archival material of the American Expeditionary Forces. And he had a very distinctive signature. And so I'd be turning pages and there's Pitt again, and there's Parker Hit. And so I was working two different angles at once, working the larger World War I cryptologic picture and working on Parker Hit. I had a very fortunate occurrence in 2009 while I was still trying to figure out where the hits were buried. I knew they had retired to Front Royal, Virginia. And a former colleague lived down that way. And he started poking around because I couldn't find them in the cemeteries. And he made contact with the local heritage society, the County Heritage Society. And coincidentally, the director there had five years previously been asked to help organize a trunk of material that had been owned by Parker Hitt. And the house that Hitt had lived in had been acquired by these folks who actually inherited it from the Hitt's daughter, Mary Louise. So it was a great, I got put in touch with them and they let me use the material. All of a sudden, I had a wealth of personal information that's not available in any other archive and which hadn't been seen. Really exciting. When you realized you had enough material for a book, that must, have, that must have focused your mind because a lot of times we are interested in a subject or a person and we just don't have enough material, but you clearly were able to assemble enough records and enough remembrances to be able to write this. Yeah, it was really exciting because there were diaries, there were letters, there were photographs, there were copies of military orders, there were all sorts of different types of paperwork and photograph albums. And so it was a treasure trove that led me to start looking in official records. And of course, getting hits official military personnel file was key. It was about four inches thick and thankfully had not burned in the fire in the St. Louis archives in the 70s. And it was the structure to which I applied all the other personal detail. I outlined his career, which was extensive and involved much more than cryptology. And I started looking at how to tell a story using the structure of the archival documents and putting his writing and his wife's letters and everything around that structure. We got to a point, though, it started as a work project, but it soon became apparent that this was going to be a bigger publication than work could or should put out because it was going to be largely non-cryptologic and really had no place being published as a government publication because it wasn't the subject. You know, Even though he touched on cryptology, a lot of the material I included in the book was not cryptologic. And at that point, I sort of, I didn't pause my research, but I paused the composition of the book because it wasn't going out for work and I wasn't allowed to execute a contract with a publisher for something that was duplicative. Yeah, it was conflict of interest with my job duties. So it had to sort of go on hold until I retired. And then you were able to, so at least you had all the material ready to go. Yeah. I had some publishers had expressed interest earlier on and that's when I took it to my boss and we worked out the details and realized I couldn't really do it 
as an employee, although I did write a monograph that was a little bit more technical for them to publish at some, at some point as part of payback for the time I had spent as an employee working the project. And then from that point, it became very separate. Right. So, in other words, what you did is you actually were able to provide material to two different markets, the internal yeah. one yeah, and the external one as well. In my opening, I alluded to the code breakers at Bletchley, and I purposely did that because most people <laughs> think of codes in terms of World War II. Unfortunately, most people don't think too much of World War I or think about World War I, I should say. And yes, there have been codes and code breaking going back, as you mentioned, a long way. But I wanted to put that in context because I know Bletchley Park has romanticized a lot, <laughs> and probably rightly so, based on the Enigma machine. And also, I read a book recently, who a guest on my show talked about. Yeah, I saw you talked to Dermot Turing. Yes, That's, correct. Uh, and, uh, and as a result, we learned about the Polish contribution to right. code breaking as well. So, code breaking has a long and storied history. And it's a long way around for what I'm trying to say, but basically, World War I is less in the public mind than World War II, and yet here is a gentleman who, he authored the Manual for the Solution of Military Ciphers in 1916, 16. right? Yeah. And then in addition to this, served not only in World War I, then retired, but that came back in World War II. Right. And it is unusual. He never really considered himself a cryptologist. It was sort of a hobby for him. He got into it when he was at the signal school, and he saw a need for a manual that could be used to teach students at the signal school, and that's what he thought he was writing. But his aptitude was such that the signal corps recognized it, and Washington recognized it, and started sending him things to do. You know, there's no NSA, there's no consolidated U.S. signals intelligence or cryptologic organization at the time, and the Army is using three or four officers, plus Genevieve hit Parker's wife, to break codes and ciphers that the Mexicans are sending while we're involved in the punitive expedition, Pershing's punitive expedition in Mexico. So it's interesting to think that all the, the radio collection on the border and any radio messages collected in Mexico, they're getting sent in the mail to officers in different places who are then breaking the codes and ciphers in their spare time and sending back their solutions to Washington to get intelligence. It was a very chaotic system. Would he be surprised about the technological improvements on cryptology over the decades, especially where we are today? I don't think he would be surprised. I think he would be pleased. He was an innovator. He was trained as an engineer. He spent three years at Purdue studying engineering. And before he quit to enlist in the Spanish-American War. But I don't think he would be surprised. He always maintained a little hand and he was, maintained a friendship with William Friedman, who was really sort of the grandfather, or the grandparent of the National Security Agency and worked there. He maintained connections with the Signal Corps. And at some point, I think it was in the late 40s, he went and he visited Vin Hill Farm Station in Virginia, which was not far from his home, and saw the Morse operators copying things and tried to make a device to make it a little bit easier for their work to automatically collect and process the Morse. So he was always thinking. So I don't think he would be too surprised. I think he'd be very pleased. In addition to his technical 
expertise and background. He was also on, in a way, the social front. What I mean by that is he was in favor of women working in the workplace at a time when women weren't necessarily working in the workplace. Yeah, he, he's really interesting in that way. Now, his mother had really been a very independent woman who had a degree in physical culture and went to teach in the first high school in Omaha, Nebraska, traveling alone by train at the time in the 18, I guess in the 1860s, early 1870s. And she was very involved in social and charitable work and a lot of committees and ran a large women's organization in Indianapolis, Indiana. So he sort of knew what women were capable of. And he waited a long time to marry. He hadn't found the right girl. And he met Genevieve Young, who was also a very independent woman and very capable. And I think he never really had a thought that women were not capable of doing the work. So I think that might have been unusual for the time, but maybe not as unusual as we seem to think. It's always interesting looking back in history and seeing where things are and getting a sense of perspective on a lot of issues that we normally take for granted today in today's world. Yeah, the hits seem very modern in a lot of ways and looking at their correspondence and, you know, I think we have perceptions that, oh, back in the olden days, back 100 years ago, people didn't think like we did, but they did in a lot of ways. Yes, people had full lives, so that's that's good. (laughs) I know, everybody thinks that we've just reinvented the human being when in fact, no, that's not the case. Yeah. I mentioned he retired and then came back to serve. So in retirement during the 40s, he was, as I understand, an informal liaison between the Army and members of the American Cryptogram Association. So tell us a little bit about the association and what part did he play during World War II? The American Cryptogram Association, he really cut his ties with them when he was back in the, went back in the service in 1940. But he had joined them. He had been in the army and then he had been in business and had a heart trouble and retired from IT&D and was always looking for something to do and some way to earn money and something to keep his mind busy because he was not that old. And he got involved with the American Cryptogram Association. They were four or five years old at the time he joined them. A World War I colleague had suggested it to him. And he started running a friendly group where people would, he would set challenges, cryptographic challenges for people to solve. And, you know, he found that very interesting. He was really welcomed by a lot of the members, including uh, Helen Fouché Gaines, who wrote a book on cryptanalysis later, elementary cryptanalysis. And he smoothed the way in 1939 for members of the ACA to try to support the government in doing cryptologic work. And in the end, not very many members of the ACA were qualified enough or came to work for the government. And the, the figure is imprecise. But you know, he helped make that link because he knew William Friedman, who prior to World War II was running the Signal Intelligence Service for the Army, uh, the Army's cryptologic agency. And he sort of linked, linked that up and smoothed the way. He cut, pretty much cut ties with the ACA once he was back on duty as the chief signal officer for the 5th Corps area 
in Columbus, Ohio in 1940. And the reason he was allowed to come back to duty was because the Army didn't have enough qualified officers to fill the need. They knew we were going to be in a war very shortly, and they're trying to ramp up. And they brought back a lot of people who were at or near retirement age, which at the time was 64 for the Army, and used them mostly in home front positions to help so that they could get people trained and send some of the younger officers overseas. So Hitt filled a very important role, which wasn't really cryptologic, though he had you know, touched on the Army's use of cipher systems at the time. But um, you know, he was really glad to be there, and he shouldn't have been because he didn't pass his medical. And it was really the old boy network that got him in, despite the fact that he had illnesses that normally the army would not have let him come back. So, well, necessity being the mother of invention in that case. Right. Did do you think based on your research and your writing of the book that he before your book came out was receiving at least recognition within the corridors of cryptology? I know he obviously wasn't receiving it in the general public because nobody knew who he was, I'm sure, but within the industry so to speak. Only because of my work, really. I mean, he was known, but he was considered a minor figure. And I did the work that got him inducted into NSA's Hall of Honor in 2011. And two buildings at NSA Texas are now named after Parker Hitt and Genevieve Young Hitt in San Antonio, which is where Genevieve was from. Now, Hitt had already been in the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame from the 1980s, and there was a hall at Fort Huachuca where the intelligence service training is done. But he was really very little recognized, very little known for an officer who was relatively senior and relatively critical to World War I operations. You know, he's not mentioned by anybody except very briefly by George Marshall in his memoirs of the First World War. And only then, because Marshall is trying to get, you know, uh, American troops are under friendly fire in early November 1918, and Marshall's trying to get word back to the artillery to stop shelling them, and the female telephone operator wouldn't connect Marshall to the chief of artillery, so he, Marshall told her, get Colonel Hit and have him send the order. <laughs> and so he's really very little mentioned. So I think it was surprising to me why he hadn't been remembered by history. He's not mentioned by all these senior officers who he clearly provided superior support to. And he's hardly, you know, it's only in the past decade he's really become known well among cryptologists and intelligence professionals. Do you think that had to do with internal politics or his personality or both? I think it's a little of both. Now, Hit's not your typical army officer. He left college after straight A's for three years at Purdue because he wanted to sign up and join the army. He was too young to become an officer, so he enlisted. So one, he's got that strike against him. He does get a commission when he's old enough, but he's got a strike against him because he did not go to West Point. He did not go to VMI. He did not fall in with the regular officer Corps, and he doesn't have a college degree, although clearly he's extremely well-educated 
He had a really varied career before the signal school, spending time in the Philippines. He was an infantry officer. He fought. You know, he was an outdoorsman. He was a rifleman. And that is in line with other officers. But and he met a lot of people there. I, so I don't know whether it was the academic or the lack of military professional schooling at the college level that held him back or whether it was his personality. I think he was intimidating to people. People, you know, he's clearly very smart. And there are comments in the in the yearbooks at Purdue for the various years that he was a member of the ego club, you know, people who thought very well of themselves. (laughs) uh, So I think he was very confident. He was strong. He was confident. He was able. And that could have been intimidating to other officers. And he was free with his opinions. If he thought he was right, he was going to tell you his opinion. He wasn't going to play the game and go along and be a yes man. And I don't think he was particularly interested in politicking his way up the ranks. Sounds like he was politically incorrect for his time. uh, Yeah, I guess you could phrase it that way, though. If you, you know, if we say politically incorrect today, you think, oh, he was a terrible racist or misogynist or something. But no, I think he was very confident. I think he had mature opinions. And I don't think he thought, I think inefficiency was what bothered him. And that probably ruffled feathers you needed to be a little bit more tolerant of in the army than in other places (laughs) yeah he would be ruffling feathers and that's never yeah put you yeah politically incorrect in the sense that he didn't want to play the politics he didn't want to do the diplomacy he just wanted to be efficient and get things done right and i don't see any indication he ever aspired to be a general i mean by rights he should have been promoted at the end of the war near the end of the war he was submitted for promotion twice but he didn't get it And I think part of that was that he was an infantry officer serving in the Signal Corps, and the Signal Corps saw saw to their own. Yeah, exactly. Before I let you go, in your research and in your writing the book, what was the most surprising thing you found out about Parker Hitt? I was really surprised when I found out how much he had to do with the cryptologic work in World War I. He was not really responsible for it although he had some oversight responsibilities for the people making the codes, which was a signal core function, and for the people collecting the signals, which was also a signal core function. But he was very involved with the people breaking the codes and ciphers. The head of that organization had been his pupil at the signal school, and they were very close. And he was consulted all the time about how should we do this? How should we do that? So he's very influential to what happened in World War I, to a point where I didn't even know this when I wrote him up for the NSA Hall of Honor back in you know, 2010. So that really surprised me as I, the research went deeper and deeper and deeper, that he really was significant, not just for his manual, not just for his other work, but he really had influenced on the thinking of the people who went on to create the 20th century cryptologic system. William Friedman was a young officer in France and was a real hero worshiper of Hit and really took to heart his work and preserved all of that work and then implemented it when he formed his organization in 1930. Pretty impressive. Well, I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Betsy Rahali Smoot. She's author of Parker Hit, 
the father of American military cryptology, published by the University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Betsy, go to BetsyRahaldiSmoot.com and you can follow her on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Betsy, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me here, Ira. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks again. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.